As we begin our time in the Word this morning, let me ask you a rhetorical question or a hypothetical question for you to consider, and it is this. Aren't you glad that God still isn't writing the Bible? What I mean is, aren't you glad that God isn't recording your life story for everyone to read and see? If you are like me, then you have made lots of mistakes and acted immaturely lots of times. We really wouldn't want that thrown out there for everyone to read. Now, why am I beginning the message this way? Well, I think about that when I think about the Apostle Peter. Who hasn't made a joke about Peter, or at least heard a joke about Peter? His development, along with all of his missteps, is recorded through the four gospel, throughout the four gospel records. He is all over the place in the gospel accounts. So a lot of people know quite a bit about him from those stories. But if that's the only picture you have of Peter, it is woefully incomplete. If you continue to track his story in and through the book of Acts, you see that he eventually became the man the Lord wanted him to be. He became solid. He became strong. But that's still not the end of the story. If you want a complete picture of Peter's life and character, you need to incorporate the view of Peter that comes through in the two letters he wrote late in his life. Those two letters are near the end of the New Testament, and the first of the two will be the focus of our consideration for the next several months, Lord willing. So please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we begin our trek through this letter written by the Apostle Peter, inspired under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And I invite you to follow along in your translation that you've brought with you, your version as I read verses 1 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims or sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter somewhere around the year A.D. 64. He was most likely in the city of Rome when he wrote it, and we'll come back to that issue near the end of the letter because of one of Peter's statements near the end. The Christians to whom he wrote were experiencing persecution and suffering and hardship. So he wrote this letter to encourage them and to strengthen them. He exhorted them to stand strong in the grace of God. In fact, it is interesting to note that the word grace is used in every chapter of 1 Peter. 
God's grace gives us strength. God's grace gives us encouragement. God's grace gives us hope. So that is the theme of this letter. It is a letter of strength, a letter of grace, and a letter of hope. I'm confident that it will encourage your heart in the weeks and months ahead. So with that in mind, let's dive into our consideration of this letter, beginning where we should begin in the very first verse. The letter opens, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As we saw last week, Peter's given name was actually Simon, but Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means stone. The Aramaic of Peter is Cephas, same name. After giving his name here at the opening of verse 1, Peter mentions the privilege that was his to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was one who was personally chosen and personally appointed by the Lord Jesus to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Messiah. According to 1 Corinthians 9, that's one, that was one of the requirements. Whoever was an apostle had to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ personally with his own eyes. We know from Galatians 2.7 that Peter was the apostle to the Jewish people. On the other side of the coin, we are familiar with the fact that the apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was a, the apostle to the Jewish people. Thus, the primary focus of his ministry was to the Jewish people. As a result, his letter before us contains many sections that are very Jewish in their style and in their content and in their phraseology, etc. However, this letter is written to both Jewish and Gentile Christians scattered throughout five provinces located in the northern part of modern-day Turkey. So don't assume that the Jewish nature of this letter makes it something that's impossible for us to understand as Gentiles. That is not the case. It's just that there are times when we will need to get familiar or familiarize ourselves with the Jewish concepts to understand the meaning of the passage. And in fact, in the text we're considering this morning, we will encounter one of those, as we'll see in just a few moments. As I mentioned a moment ago, this letter is a letter of hope and encouragement in the midst of trials, difficulty, and suffering. Peter writes to give his readers hope. Someone has well said that Paul was the apostle of faith, Peter was the apostle of hope, and John was the apostle of love. It's valid to see those men's ministries with that sort of emphasis. This letter is filled with statements of hope. Here in verse 1, Peter states that he wrote this letter to the pilgrims or the sojourners or exiles of the dispersion. That means he wrote this letter to a scattered group of people, not to one localized group of people like we have in, for example, the book of Colossians or the book of Philippians or 1 Thessalonians. Those were written to Christians in a particular local church. This letter is different. It was written to a scattered group of people in five different provinces. Peter mentions the places where they were scattered here in verse 1, and he refers to them as exiles or strangers or pilgrims or aliens, depending on your translation. That is a reminder to us that as Christians, this world is really not our home. 
We are just passing through. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our reward is there. Our destiny is there. The Philippians could relate to this word picture. They were citizens of Rome, but they were far away from Rome, living in the city of Philippi. In the same way, we are citizens of, of heaven, even though we're a long ways away from heaven. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, the author describes believers as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Let that picture crystallize in your mind. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Peter referred to us as sojourners and pilgrims in 1 Peter 2.11. That emphasizes the point that we are just passing through. This world is not our home. Heaven is. A fascinating ancient letter was discovered, a letter that was written by an unbelieving government official in the first century. It is called the Epistle of Diognetus, and it describes how unbelievers viewed Christians in the first century. Listen as I quote from this letter. Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech or their customs. They dwell in cities both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast, following the customs of the region in clothing and in food and in the outward things of life generally. Yet, they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. They inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land is a foreign land. They pass their days upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven, end quote. Beloved, that was written by an unbeliever describing Christians in the first century. Does that describe you? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Peter gives that reminder right here in the opening verse of his letter. He will restate it again in chapter 2, verse 11. We do not belong to this world but we do belong to God. And that is why Peter adds the next verse, verse 2. He says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we don't belong to this world, but we do belong to God because He has chosen us. What a glorious privilege. God has chosen us to be his people. Can you fathom this, beloved? No, you can't. And neither can I. It is so easy for us to get all tied up in knots over the doctrine of election that we fail to miss the point that this truth ought to be exceedingly humbling to us. Who are we? We are nobodies. We are undeserving. We are unworthy, yet God has chosen us to be his children. That ought to be our first response to this truth. Awe, amazement, wonder. Instead, we often begin objecting or asking a lot of questions that really can't be answered until we get to eternity. 
We want to know how this doctrine fits in with human choice or human volition. We want to know why God chose us and not others. We want to know why God determined to carry out his plan this way. We get tied up in knots over the wrong issues. Some Christians even come up with the absurd idea that this means that there are people who want to be God's children, but they can't because they aren't elect. It's amazing, but not surprising, that people often take this doctrine and warp it in a direction God never intended. Beloved, the reason why Peter mentions election here in this verse is because he wants to remind us that as Christians, we do not belong to this world, and we are often rejected by this world, but we have the privilege of belonging to God. We have the indescribable privilege of being a child of God. God chose us to be his children. Peter says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now be careful how you read that phrase so that you don't misread it. What I mean is, Peter did not say that we have been chosen based on foresight, but rather based on foreknowledge. Those two are not the same. If Peter had said we are chosen based on foresight, he would have been saying that God looked forward in time to see who would choose him, and then he chose them. That is what many Christians believe. That is what many Christians teach. But that is not really what Scripture teaches. Foreknowledge and foresight are not the same. The term foreknowledge here in verse 2 is the same Greek word used in verse 20 of this chapter, where it is translated foreknown, foreordained, or chosen, depending on your English translation. This word does not mean, please hear me, this word does not mean to look forward in time. It means to predetermine. God did not choose us based on whether or not we would choose him. God chose us because he predetermined that he would choose us. It is not based on us. It is based on God's purposes. That was, is, the basis of God's choice. The means of his choice, or or the way it works itself out, is the next phrase here in verse 2, the sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctify means to set apart. So what this is telling us is that because God has chosen us, the Holy Spirit sets us apart to accomplish God's purposes. That is the means of God accomplishing his elective work. So notice what Peter has told us thus far. The basis of God's choice is foreknowledge. Not foresight, foreknowledge. His predetermined purpose. That's the basis. The means of his choice is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of his choice, and this is the third thing he tells us here in this verse, the purpose of his choice is found in the next phrase, the phrase for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a very intriguing statement that Peter makes here, and he illustrates it with a powerful word picture that his Jewish audience would have immediately recognized. We don't recognize it immediately. We're not Jewish. We're not as familiar with Hebrew Scripture as the Jewish people would have been to whom Peter was writing. But this is a very powerful picture. 
Let me explain. The first thing he says in this phrase is that God chose us and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart so that we will obey Jesus Christ. You see that? For obedience or to obey or unto obedience, it says. It's important to emphasize this point because many Christians assume that the reason why God saves us is simply to take us to heaven. Or the reason why God chose us is to make us happy. That is not an an accurate understanding of salvation. Here Peter reminds us God chose us and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that we will obey the Lord Jesus Christ. To drive home this point even further, Peter uses a powerful picture that has roots in Hebrew Scripture, roots in the Old Testament. He refers to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I first read that, understandably, it would be very easy for us to assume that the point of this phrase is to describe the cleansing that we receive from the blood of Jesus Christ. That's probably the first thought that comes into our minds. We, we read this sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's cleansing of our sins. I don't think that's the point Peter is making. And let me tell you why. If Peter were using this picture to describe the fact that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, which is true, by the way, you know that. You know we are saved by the blood of Christ. That's, that's non-negotiable. That, is, that goes without saying. But if Peter were using this picture to describe the fact that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, then it really seems out of place to put it at the end of this verse. If that were Peter's point, it seems that he would have placed the phrase earlier before he talked about our obedience. The Word of God is clear that salvation takes place before obedience In other words, our lives are changed, our hearts are changed. That's what issues forth in obedience. And our obedience has absolutely nothing to do with us attaining salvation. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by goodness. So I don't think Peter is talking about being cleansed of our sin for salvation when he uses the phrase, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. If that were his point, it is almost certain that he would have placed this phrase before he mentioned our obedience. So what is Peter's point? I'm glad you asked. I believe Peter is drawing on a passage in Exodus 24. You can jot it down to look at for yourself. We don't have time this morning. But Exodus 24 is the key passage here where Moses sprinkled sacrificial blood on the Jewish people as a symbolic way of sealing the covenant with God in which the people promised to obey God's word. That idea fits perfectly with Peter's mention of the word obey or obedience just prior to this phrase. So the idea here is this. When we place faith in Jesus Christ's shed blood on the cross, we are not only accepting his payment for our sin, We are also indicating that it is our intention to obey the Lord and His Word. That is why Peter uses this phrase after he mentions obedience, not prior to mentioning obedience. When the Jewish people entered into the Old Covenant, they affirmed their uh, intention to obey God's Word. 
when we are brought into the new covenant by the electing work of the Father and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we are saved unto obedience. We weren't saved to do whatever we want to do. We weren't saved to live any way we want to live. We were saved to obey the Lord and to live for His glory. Peter reminds us of that fact right here in the opening greeting of his letter when he says, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in or by sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he adds at the end of this verse, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's a powerful opening greeting, is it not? There is so much in these opening two verses, and we haven't even gotten into the body of the letter yet. That begins in verse 3. Notice how Peter begins his letter proper. Verse 3, after his greeting, his opening uh, greeting, or just the initial introduction, he begins the letter in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Once again, Peter emphasizes the fact that our salvation is God's work. It is God's doing. Peter says here in verse 3 that God our Father caused us to be born again. He has given us new birth. It was His work. He has begotten us. And that is why Peter gives this doxology of praise to open the verse, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost as if you you could render this, How blessed is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter contemplates what God has done for us, he can't help but burst forth in praise and burst forth in exclamation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is abundant in mercy, as the verse says, and as a result, He has given us new life. This new life that we possess through faith in the Lord Jesus grants us a living hope. As I've mentioned many times in the past, the word hope in the New Testament does not mean the same thing and is not used the same way as we use the word today. When reading your Bible and you come across the word hope, you have to, you have to switch your thinking. You have to consciously think biblically and not the way we use it. When we use the word hope, we are referring to something that we wish or something that we desire. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope it does rain tomorrow, or I I hope I don't have to have surgery on my sore leg, or I hope we can get together sometime soon. When we use the word hope in sentences like that, we are talking about something that we desire or don't desire, but we're not sure what's going to happen. Again, I emphasize, beloved, that is not the way the word hope is used in the New Testament. Retrain your thinking for reading your Bible when you encounter the word hope. The New Testament concept of hope is something that is future, so we don't have it now, but it is absolutely certain. 
We don't have it now, which is why it is a hope, but there's no uncertainty about it. There is no doubt about it. Because we have been given new life through faith in the Lord Jesus, we have a future hope that is absolutely certain. In fact, notice here in verse 3 that Peter calls it a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It is a living hope because it was accomplished by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection is the guarantee of our promised hope. We don't have it now. But it is certain we will receive it. Which is why Peter calls it an inheritance in the next verse. He says in verse 4, that the Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What a great verse of Scripture. We have an inheritance awaiting us. It is more mind-blowing than any inheritance anyone has ever received in this life. It is so remarkable that Peter piles up words here in this verse to try to describe it. Notice that. He says our inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and reserved in heaven for us. The word imperishable means not subject to passing away. Our inheritance can never pass away. Our inheritance can never cease to exist. It's not going anywhere. The word undefiled, the the second word, depending on what English translation you have, this word means unpolluted or unstained. Our inheritance will never be polluted. Our inheritance will never be corrupted in any way. Nothing can spoil it. No one can spoil it. The word unfading, third word there, a third word of description, means that it can't diminish, it can't lose its luster, it can't decrease in any way. A lot of people know what it's like to have a retirement account or an inheritance that decreases in value the longer it sits there. That cannot happen with our heavenly inheritance. All three of these words, by the way, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, all three of these words are very similar. And Peter could have just chosen one since they are so similar. But Peter mentions all of them because he is trying to describe the indescribable. The Apostle John had a similar problem in Revelation 21 when he was shown a vision of the new heaven and the new earth and what life is going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth. He tried to describe it. But because there is a sense in which it is indescribable, it's fascinating to notice in Revelation 21 that John begins by describing the new heaven and the new earth by what won't be there. Instead of beginning to describe what will be there, he describes what won't be there. One of the best ways to describe our eternal home, one of the best ways to describe our future existence, is to use the words, simple words, no more. No more. It's easier to describe by what won't be there rather than what will be there because it's impossible to adequately describe what is inconceivable to us. 
And that is why as you read through Revelation 21 and 22, especially, you find John using the word like a lot. Well, it was, it's like this, and it's, it's kind of like that, and it's, it's like this, but he can't say exactly what it is. So John tells us what our eternal home will be by using words, no more. Bad things will be no more. Evil things will be no more. Hurtful things will be no more. Disappointing things will be no more. The former things have passed away. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Sometimes people wonder if when they get to heaven, are they going to be sad because they think about what happened here on the earth and maybe lost loved ones or or other issues. Listen, God says the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. We won't have any bad memories in the eternal state, so there won't be any tears. Try to imagine that. No tears. No tears of misfortune. No tears of poverty. No tears of loneliness. No tears of mercy. No tears of pity. No tears of persecution. No tears of remorse. No tears of regret. No tears of yearning for what cannot be. No more tears. They will never be. In fact, Scripture tells us God Himself will wipe away every tear. That kind of personal attention is it's incomprehensible. John found it difficult to describe what awaits us. And Peter had the same struggle. That's why I said he just tried to pile up words to describe the indescribable. And then the final thing Peter says here in verse 4 about our future inheritance is that it is reserved in heaven for you or kept in heaven for you. That means no one can take it. No one can steal it. Nothing can happen to it to remove it from heaven. It is there. It is fixed. It is secure. It is certain. It isn't going anywhere. It is kept by God for those of us who know His Son, Jesus Christ, by faith. That's how certain it is. Now maybe you're saying, sure, sure. The inheritance is reserved securely in heaven. The inheritance is kept securely in heaven, which means it can't fail. But I know that I fail. Maybe I can mess up everything with the result that I won't receive the inheritance. Anticipating that thought, Peter adds the next verse, verse 5. He says, this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation or unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this verse tells us that not only is our inheritance kept by God, that's verse 4, not only is our inheritance guarded by God, that's verse 4, We are also kept by the power of God. That's verse 5. We are also protected by the power of God. 
No one can steal our inheritance, and we can't be disqualified from receiving it. It is absolutely certain. Isn't that encouraging, beloved? Whatever God begins, He finishes. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. How long? Until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the day that Jesus descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the day of Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God started the process of salvation all the way back in eternity past when he chose us, And he will complete the process by making sure we are kept until the day we receive our inheritance in heaven. Beloved, this is so certain. This is so certain that the Apostle Paul wrote about it by using a past tense verb. Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called... Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. Why did Paul write that in the past tense? Are any of you already glorified? No offense, but none of you look very glorified to me. I know you could say the same about me. Then, then why does Paul use the past tense? Those who are justified are glorified, past tense. Why? Because it is so certain that we will be glorified that it can be described as if it has already taken place. In fact, that was not an uncommon tool of writing in Greek to state something in the past tense that is future but is certain. You just state it by using the past tense. We are kept By the power of God, verse 5 says, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that Peter says we are kept through faith or by faith, depending on your translation. The emphasis of that little phrase is the fact that God not only keeps us eternally secure, but he also keeps our faith energized. That is why the Reformers preferred the phrase the perseverance of the saints instead of our common phrase eternal security. Yes, we are eternally secure, but the more accurate way to say it is to talk about the perseverance of the saints because God keeps our faith energized. God energizes us to persevere. This does not mean that a true Christian can't sin, obviously, hopefully you know that. This does not mean that a true Christian can't fail, can't fall away, can't backslide. A true Christian can do any of those things. In fact, remember who was writing this letter. It was Peter. Peter did all of the above. But the Lord always brought Peter back around eventually and restored him. That's the way the Lord works with his children. That's what he does for those who truly belong to him. He may let us fail. He may let us wander, may let us drift, backslide, whatever term you want to use. But sooner or later, he brings us back around or he just takes us home early. On one occasion, right near the end of 
Jesus' ministry, Jesus told Peter that Satan wanted to destroy Peter spiritually. Do you remember that? He used the analogy that Peter would have been able to relate to. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, Jesus was saying, Simon, Satan has asked for you because he wants to destroy you spiritually. Then Jesus added this, But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned around, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter failed, and he failed miserably. But Satan didn't win in his life because Jesus brought him back around. That's one of the reasons why Peter could write here in verse 5, he could write with confidence that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If we have placed faith in Jesus Christ, we have already experienced salvation. Then why does Peter say here in verse 5 that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation? I thought we already had salvation. Yes, if we have placed faith in Jesus Christ, we have already experienced salvation. But our salvation has a future aspect to it, a future component to it, ready to be revealed in the last time. This future aspect will reach its culmination one day. God has amazing things in store for those of us who by His grace are His children. That really ought to prompt your heart to say with Peter what he said at the first part of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, beloved, this, this opening section of Peter's letter is as rich as it gets. Describing what God has done for us it ought, to, it ought to cause within us this, this groundswell of, of emotion that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As one man I heard say it in the South, Listen, if this doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. I mean, this, this, is, this is as good as it gets. God's children have an amazing inheritance awaiting us. And it is certain It is secure. It is absolutely, positively going to happen. So I ask you this morning, are you one of God's children? You are not unless you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Faith in Him is the only way to become a child of God. So I urge you to call on Him in childlike faith if you've never done so. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, contemplate just for a couple minutes what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard. If you are a child of God, this this should thrill your heart. It should thrill your soul to think that God says that we have been begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade, reserved in heaven, and we are kept by the power of God. Thank the Lord for what He has done and what He has promised to do in your life and for you 
if you belong to him. And if you do not belong to him, Scripture could not be any more clear that the only way to know God as Father, the only way to be a child of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that more often than any other truth. That doctrine is repeated more often than any other in the entire New Testament that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know God as your Father, if you don't have the Lord's salvation, then I urge you to receive Jesus Christ by faith. In in humility before God, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive your sins, to grant you his salvation, and and then to begin making you the man or the woman he wants you to be. When, When you have that relationship with him, you will have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, incorruptible, reserved in heaven. Father, we are in awe of what you have promised us in your word. Just to, just to save us from hell, which we deserve, would have been abundantly merciful. But you have promised exceedingly abundantly above that. Not only do you save us from our sin, save us from your judgment, save us from the the wrath to come, you promise us all of these things that we have talked about this morning. And such thoughts are are overwhelming to us. They're they're beyond us. It's, It's like we're trying to grasp that which is impossible for us to grasp. As we see Peter trying to describe that which is indescribable. But we thank you that you have told us about it and you encourage our hearts with this truth. May your spirit enlighten our understanding and give us, give us a greater appreciation for what we have seen and heard this morning concerning your glorious salvation, which is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we say that, we want to pray. We want to pray for anyone hearing these words right now, anyone here in our midst, who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, personally, intimately, as Lord and Savior. We pray for your Holy Spirit to bring about understanding, enlightenment, conviction, so that that person, he or she, would surrender to Jesus Christ, come to know Him, and experience His transforming salvation, and to become a child of yours, Father. To be able to call you, Father, for the first time, properly, rightly. Accomplish these things to exalt your name, edify your people, evangelize the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.